You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 96, Our Favorite Enemy. Thanks for joining me. As always, before we get started, I'd like to thank our Patreon subscribers. Your support keeps the show going. As you know, we've recently started doing exclusive bonus content for Patreon supporters, the Dispatches. The last one included discussions of noble titles, routing in combat, and the Napoleonic Wars in video games. And of course, subscribers also get access to ad-free episodes. If any of that sounds interesting to you, visit patreon.com slash ageofnapoleon to sign up. Anyway, we left off last time on the evening of October 14th, 1806. The Grande Armée had just won two complete triumphs over the Prussians. At Jena, Napoleon achieved a lopsided victory over a small, poorly deployed, and incompetently led Prussian force. At Auerstedt, the Iron Marshal, Louis-Nicolas de Vu, had led his Third Corps to a truly extraordinary victory against tremendous odds. Napoleon himself called their performance astonishing. Davout's Third Corps had suffered severe casualties, roughly one quarter of their number had been killed or wounded, and the survivors were shaken and exhausted after their ordeal. Seventh Corps under Marshal Augereau was exhausted as well. They had seen some of the hardest fighting at Jena, after a grueling forced march to get to the battlefield. However, the rest of the Grande Armée was surprisingly fresh for a force that had just fought in two major battles. As we discussed last episode, 1st Corps under Marshal Bernadotte had not even been engaged. This had angered many of his colleagues and his emperor, but it did mean Bernadotte's men were near peak readiness for any future operations. It was a very different story on the Prussian side. Nearly every Prussian unit at Jena had fled the field in disorder. Many soldiers had thrown away their weapons and equipment. Many had become separated from their units some by mistake, lost in the chaos of the retreat, others by design, hoping to use this opportunity to desert the army. The Prussians at Auerstedt had fared a bit better, but not by much. Early in the day, they'd had a good shot at winning the battle, but by nightfall, most of their units were in a similar condition to their comrades at Jena. All told, the three Prussian field armies had lost about 40,000 men on October 14th, 
representing nearly a third of their total strength. Many of the survivors were in no condition to fight. Unsurprisingly, their morale had plummeted. In some units, officers were having difficulty keeping their men under control. After the way the Prussian officer corps had performed in these battles, perhaps we can't blame their soldiers for distrusting them. Almost everyone in the army, from the senior generals down to the fresh recruits, had suffered a severe psychological blow. Karl von Clausewitz, a young Prussian staff officer who had fought at Auerstedt, would later remember, quote, One may have been aware of the likelihood of defeat all along, but for the lack of more solid alternatives, this awareness was countered by one's own trust in chance, good luck, providence, and in one's own audacity and courage. All this has now turned out to have been insufficient, and one is harshly and inexorably confronted by the terrible truth. End quote. Low morale was exacerbated by supply problems. We discussed in earlier episodes how the Prussians began having logistical issues before the war even began. Who smashing defeats, followed by chaotic withdrawals from the two battlefields, had brought this pre-existing problem to the level of a crisis. By this stage in the war, some authors refer to Prussian units as starving. That might not be literally true, but it's not far off. Napoleon would not give his enemies time to regroup. Before dawn on October 15th, he was already issuing orders for the pursuit. The exhausted troops from 3rd and 7th Corps would get a brief respite, but the rest of the Grande Armée would immediately begin fanning out across northern and eastern Germany. The French had to destroy as much of the Prussian military and occupy as much of the country as they could, as quickly as possible. Remember, if you look at the broader picture, at all the forces arrayed against France, Napoleon was at a disadvantage. The emperor knew he had to neutralize any threat on his borders immediately, before his enemies could concentrate their forces. The Russians were already preparing a large force to march into Prussia. With the seas controlled by the Royal Navy, there was also the risk of British or Swedish troops landing on the Baltic coast. Even stunning victories, like the ones at Jena and Auerstedt, might not mean much in the grand scheme of things unless they were properly exploited. Fortunately for the French, the Prussians were in such a state that they could no longer muster very much effective resistance. Many of the survivors of Jena and Auerstedt retreated to the city of Erfurt, a major urban center with good fortifications. Marshal Murat's cavalry corps was hot on their heels. Around 12,000 Prussians found refuge in Erfurt before the French horsemen began to arrive outside the walls. Murat sent an officer into the city under a flag of truce, demanding the Prussians surrender. The commander of Erfurt, Prince William of Orange, refused and began preparing the city for a siege. However, he and his officers quickly ran into a problem. Many of their soldiers were on the verge of mutiny, and the prospect of spending months cooped up inside the walls of the city, on reduced rations, being pounded by French artillery, could easily be enough to send them over the edge. Some of the units at Erfurt were quite good. They included the Grenadiers of the Guard, one of the elite personal regiments of the King of Prussia, but the men were simply past their limits. After a few hours of trying, and mostly failing, to prepare for a siege, Prince William came to the conclusion that he had no choice but to get back in touch with the French, 
to accept their terms of surrender. And so 12,000 sullen Prussian and Saxon soldiers filed out of Erfurt to lay down their arms at the feet of Marshal Murat's troopers. A major Prussian city fell into the hands of the French, complete with its extensive fortifications and huge stocks of supplies. This fortress had only succeeded in delaying the French for a few hours. We already discussed the Battle of Halle last episode. After his failures on the day of Jena and Auerstedt, Marshal Bernadotte was eager to redeem himself and prove he and his corps could fight. The Prussian garrison of Halle was sizable, perhaps as many as 16,000 strong, and these were fresh, well-supplied troops who had not fought at Jena and Auerstedt, and so had relatively high morale. Nonetheless, Bernadotte ordered an aggressive attack. It worked. The men of First Corps stormed the city in dramatic fashion. Apparently there was hard fighting right in the town square. By the time the dust settled, Bernadotte had inflicted over 5,000 casualties on the Prussians, at the cost of just 800 of his own men. On October 27th, 13 days after the twin victories of Jena and Auerstedt, French troops entered Berlin. In recognition of their achievements at Auerstedt, Napoleon allowed Marshal Davout and the men of Third Corps to have the honor of being the first to enter the enemy capital. The very next day, Murat's cavalry caught up with the remnants of General Hohenlohe's army at the city of Prenzlau, just north of Berlin. Hohenlohe tried to organize a defense. He managed to form a line, but, just like at Erfurt, many of his soldiers had low morale, little food, and were on the brink of mutiny. Murat was stretched thin. Only a few of his furthest forward units were able to engage, and they had come so far so fast that there was no hope of infantry or artillery support arriving anytime soon. Still, Murat ordered an attack, and with the Prussians in a desperate state, the smaller French force was able to drive them into the city of Prenzlau. Just like at Erfurt, Murat sent messengers into the city under a flag of truce to demand its surrender. The French had only managed to concentrate a small force of cavalry around Prenzlau. In fact, the Prussian forces that had fled into the city far outnumbered Murat's men. The French messengers tried to bluff, to imply they were just the vanguard of an entire corps that was right down the road, marching north from Berlin. After everything the French had achieved in the past few weeks, this lie seemed believable. General Hohenlohe had no confidence his men would, or even could, hold on through a siege. He surrendered. About 10,000 more Prussian troops became prisoners. All of their equipment, artillery, and supplies fell into French hands. The very next day, a short distance to the northeast, a very similar scene played out at Passavok. The town was well fortified with a modern citadel and lots of supplies, and garrisoned by over 4,000 Prussian troops. The French surrounded the city with just two brigades of light cavalry, and sent the customary demand for surrender. Once again, the French messengers bluffed, implying they were just the vanguard of a huge force. Once again, the Prussians fell for it. They agreed to enter French custody, and turned over the fortress without a fight. The very next day, the port city of Stettin capitulated. Its garrison was roughly 5,000 strong, and they had a whopping 281 cannon, enough to equip an entire army. 
The French force that captured Stettin numbered just 500 men, all lightly armed cavalry with just two light cannon. Marshal Lawn remarked, quote, The Prussian army is in such a state of panic that the mere appearance of a Frenchman is enough to make it lay down its arms. End quote. Of course, Lon was exaggerating, but not by much. To the west, Prussia's second-largest city, Magdeburg, was holding out. The city's commander, General Franz von Kleist, had around 25,000 men, most of whom had not fought at Jena or Auerstedt and were supplied from the generous stockpiles under the city's extensive fortifications. The Prussians held firm for over a week, but as news began to filter into the city of the disasters befalling other Prussian units all over the country, their morale began to decline. On November 4th, Kleist attempted to break out, and was unsuccessful. His soldiers' morale plummeted even further. Soon, French heavy artillery began to appear just outside the city, and the reality that the garrison would soon face a difficult siege began to set in. Like many other Prussian generals, Kleist realized he could not count on his men to stand firm through the horrors of a siege. He too saw no other option but to surrender. 25,000 more Prussians entered French custody, and once again, the Grande Armée was able to seize huge stockpiles of supplies and munitions. The city had only been able to hold out for two weeks. Years later, an official Prussian government inquiry into the defeats of 1806 would find General Kleist guilty of dereliction of duty, with a sentence of execution by firing squad. Fortunately for Kleist, he was already dead by the time he was sentenced. This was a time of pure, unmitigated misery for the Prussian army. However, there were a few units under good leadership that were at least able to put up a fight. On November 1st, a Prussian force under Ludwig York and August von Pletz engaged the French near the villages of Waren and Nocenten. It was a desperate fight. Marshal Bernadotte had almost succeeded in surrounding a large Prussian force. They had to turn around and fight a rearguard if they hoped to escape. Amazingly, they pulled it off. The Prussians fought well in a full day of confused skirmishes, and succeeded in slipping Bernadotte's noose. Meanwhile, to the northwest, General Gebhard Leberecht von Blücher, an aging but still fiery ex-cavalryman, had managed to lead around 17,000 Prussian troops towards the city of Lübeck, where he hoped to find support from Prussia's Swedish allies, just across the Baltic and maybe even hold out long enough for some of his troops to be evacuated by the British or Russian navies. Despite his advanced age and heavy drinking, General Blücher was a very capable commander, and by this stage in the campaign, Colonel Gerhard von Scharnhorst, probably Prussia's best staff officer, was serving as his chief of staff. They and their officers set to work fortifying Lübeck and preparing their men for a battle. They were joined by a detachment of just under 2,000 Swedes, well-equipped, fresh troops who had not suffered the same brutal blows to their morale as the Prussians. Most of his forces were in bad shape, but with good leadership, a good position, and reinforcements from their allies, at least they stood a fighting chance. Blücher would make a stand. As one of his aides put it, quote, even if the battle was lost, it would cost the enemy men and win time for the king. End quote. 
As you might remember from last episode, King Frederick William was on the run east, towards Russian territory. Unfortunately for the Prussians, there were not one, not two, but three French corps bearing down on Blücher and his men. Though after weeks of hard fighting and constant marching, each corps had only a fraction of its men still fit for duty. The French attacked Lübeck on November 6th. They penetrated the city relatively easily, but the Prussians and Swedes fought hard in the narrow, defensible streets. The men of the Grande Armée kept pushing, but the fighting was ferocious. An unexpected French assault suddenly put Blücher's headquarters under threat. The old Hussar general ran for it and managed to escape, but most of his staff was captured, including Colonel Scharnhorst. However, running away from a fight was not really Blücher's style. He had not been fleeing the headquarters, but had run off to rally a large group of cavalry, which he then personally led in a charge towards the headquarters, hoping to rescue his staff. But the French were too numerous, and he was pushed back. Soon, the last Prussian defenders had been driven from Lübeck. With nowhere left to run, and almost all of his supplies left behind in the city, Blücher was forced to surrender. The French netted around 10,000 more prisoners. On top of that, the Prussians lost around 6,000 men killed and wounded, compared to roughly 2,000 French casualties. At the end of his official surrender, Blücher added a clause, quote, I capitulate because I have neither bread nor ammunition. End quote. He wanted it on the record that he would have happily continued fighting if he had the means. News of General Blücher's brave stand at Lübeck and his defiant surrender soon spread throughout Prussia and made Blücher into something approaching a national hero. He had not allowed defeat to dampen his fighting spirit, an example the people of Prussia desperately needed as they began coming to terms with the disasters of the preceding month. Lübeck had been the last remaining major city in the Prussian heartland still free from French occupation. There were still a few areas remaining under Prussian sovereignty, mostly in the east, former Polish territory, plus the region of East Prussia near modern Lithuania. But the vast majority of the country's population and tax base was now in French hands. And it wasn't just Prussia. Almost all of the small states of northern Germany were also occupied. Most of these countries were allies, or at least friends, of Prussia. But many of them had played no part in the hostilities, and were not officially at war with France. Napoleon didn't care. He would remake the map of northern Germany, just as he had done in the west and south. Of course, it's one thing to talk about that in the abstract, but in practice, this process played out in a million little scenes between French soldiers and German civilians, a few of which were quite ugly. Roughly 200,000 hungry mouths were now fanning out across the region. The French were armed to the teeth and empowered to requisition food and supplies from anyone they encountered. By this point in our story, the lead units of the Grande Armée were several days' march from their supply trains. They had no choice but to rely on what they could strip from the countryside and extort from the cities and towns. During our episodes on the First Italian Campaign, we talked about all the wealth and supplies Napoleon's men had commandeered from the Po Valley. Depending on the phase of the campaign, 
the army of Italy had been about 20,000 strong. Now there were about ten times that many French soldiers marching through northern Germany. With the Grande Armée moving as fast as it was, they had little choice but to requisition or steal food to keep themselves alive. But not all soldiers were so scrupulous. Many also used the opportunity to loot valuables or steal liquor. There were also more serious crimes, like assault and even rape and murder. For whatever it was worth, Napoleon himself detested this kind of lawlessness and ordered his officers to punish these offenses harshly. But the officers could not be everywhere at once, and they often felt pressure to look the other way. There was a good reason common people of this era generally feared soldiers, whatever uniform they wore. For many people, the French weren't even the worst of their problems. Some areas were beset by roving gangs of Prussian deserters, who had turned their backs on their country and no longer had any officers to rein them in. Marshal Soult would later recall, quote, The paths of the Corps have been marked by fire, devastation, and atrocious crimes. End quote. In Weimar, an anonymous pamphleteer published a poem about the city's sorrows. Quote, and the plundering continued. Three times four and twenty hours. Everything without exception stole they from us, rich or poor. If three men went out the door, all at once came in six more. End quote. Interestingly, this poem was approved by French censors, possibly because it goes on to praise the French officers for at least attempting to rein their men in. It seems at least some Prussians understood this was simply the way of the world. If the situation was reversed and the Prussian army was pushing into France, it would be the common French men and women suffering the appetites of the Prussians, rather than vice versa. All this looting and lawlessness were just two more unfortunate consequences of war. As the saying goes, woe to the conquered. The common people of Prussia had no choice but to grin and bear it, at least for the moment. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. As for the attitudes of the French, there was perhaps some added ferocity as they marched against the Prussians. As one French officer put it, quote, Prussia had been our favorite enemy since the emigration of the French nobility. Their army was full of émigrés and sons of émigrés. For us, the Prussian war was a crusade against infidels. End quote. Maybe he was getting a little dramatic at the end there, but I think the sentiment is worth discussing. Prussia was seen by many as the last and strongest bastion of the old order. Britain often acted as a defender of the old order in its diplomatic relations, but its domestic regime was a somewhat unusual constitutional monarchy that actually had a lot of liberal and progressive elements. 
Russia was definitely an old regime monarchy, but the Russians were still viewed as outsiders by many Europeans. Some of this was simple prejudice, but there were some concrete differences between Russia and other European states, owing to Russia's unique history and geography, and the massive size of their empire. As for the Habsburgs, as we've already discussed many times in the past, their regime had a lot of unusual quirks and was widely seen as dysfunctional. No one would have held them up as a model of governance, especially after being manhandled by the French in three successive wars. Of all the great powers, the Prussian government came the closest to resembling the 18th century ideal of an enlightened absolute monarchy. Like every European government of this era, their regime included a lot of local peculiarities and holdovers of feudalism. But if any government could be held up as an example of the ideal type, it was the one in Berlin. So there was an ideological element to this war, which was exacerbated by Prussian support for counter-revolutionary émigrés, as that French officer alluded to. And the activism of the pro-war faction of the Prussian court had not gone unnoticed. Their sometimes quite colorful denunciations of France had made their way to Paris. Napoleon was well aware that Queen Louise refused to refer to him by his name or title, but only as the monster. The French also had historical reasons for bitterness towards their Prussian enemies. In his official proclamation after the twin victories, Napoleon wrote, quote, The Battle of Jena has wiped away the disgrace of the Battle of Rossbach. In fact, this is the very first line of the bulletin, so apparently this was foremost in Napoleon's mind in the wake of these great victories. The Battle of Rossbach had taken place nearly 50 years earlier, during the Seven Years' War. It was fought only about 35 kilometers or 21 miles from the battlefield of Auerstedt, so perhaps it is not surprising that it was on the minds of the officers of the Grande Armée. Rossbach had been one of Frederick the Great's most dazzling victories. On November 5, 1757, a Prussian army of just 22,000 men had faced off against a combined French and Habsburg force over 40,000 strong. Despite being outnumbered nearly two to one, the Prussians triumphed. Frederick's army lost just 500 men while inflicting around 9,000 casualties on the French and Austrians. A little trivia, the defeated French commander, the Prince of Soubise, was the great-grandfather of the Duke of Enghien, that émigré nobleman who had been controversially murdered under Napoleon's orders back in 1804. The French army suffered many humiliations during the Seven Years' War, but few had stung as badly as Rossbach. You might remember from our very early episodes that the legacy of the Seven Years' War loomed very large in the French army of the late 18th century. When Napoleon and his senior commanders had been young cadets, they had been educated by an army that was practically obsessed with the experience of the Seven Years' War desperate to learn the lessons of defeat and reform itself into a force that would never face such a disaster again. The officer corps of the French army, Rossbach was more than a historical event in the distant past. It was a symbol of all the failures of the old royal army. They had devoted their entire careers to ensuring there was never another Rossbach. Now, not only had they succeeded in rebuilding the French military, 
they had actually turned the tables on the army of Frederick the Great and inflicted an even bigger defeat on the Prussians than the one suffered by their forefathers on almost the same spot 49 years earlier. Jena and Auerstedt were not only great military achievements, they carried massive cultural and even psychological significance. The French felt they had finally kicked in the door of the last stronghold of the old regimes, and settled the last of the old scores left over from the humiliating days before the revolution. Napoleon himself was not immune to these feelings. He had long been fascinated by Frederick the Great, a man he admired in many ways, and even modeled himself after to a degree, but also a man he had been raised to view as his country's nemesis. Shortly after making his triumphal entry into Berlin, the emperor hurried to Potsdam, just outside the city, to visit the palaces and tomb of King Frederick. You might remember that almost exactly a year earlier, Frederick's tomb had been the site of that fateful meeting between his successor, King Frederick William, and Emperor Alexander of Russia, in which Frederick William had finally pledged his country to war. With the benefit of hindsight, that meeting had been an important step down the road that had eventually led to Napoleon visiting the tomb as a conqueror one year later. The Emperor of the French stood in front of the great king's sarcophagus for a long time, in total silence. We don't know exactly what he was thinking, but I'm sure it must have occurred to him that he had undeniably surpassed a man he had long viewed as a role model. Finally, he snapped out of his meditation, turned to his staff, and said, quote, Hats off, gentlemen. If he were alive, we would not be here today. End quote. I think he was probably right. But Napoleon's obsession with Frederick did not stop here. He had artifacts from the great king's life removed from Potsdam and taken to Paris. The flags of his personal bodyguards, his sword along with its scabbard and belt, and the Order of the Black Eagle emblem he had worn on his chest. By the standards of an 18th century monarch, Frederick had been a very Spartan dresser. He was famous for only wearing a simple officer's uniform, without any medals or decorations, other than the Order of the Black Eagle. So, this medal was a famous part of his image. I've always wondered if Napoleon's habit of wearing a relatively simple officer's uniform with few decorations was borrowed from Frederick. In any case, these symbols of the great king's military genius would now be on display in Paris. I'm not sure it's totally fair to call these war trophies. Napoleon viewed himself as Frederick's spiritual successor. If he was here to explain himself, he would probably say that it was quite natural for the relics of Frederick's wars to be in France, where his legacy was still alive, rather than in Prussia, where the performance of the Prussian military clearly showed that his legacy was dead and buried, just like the man himself. Still, you can probably imagine how this was all viewed by the Prussians. To them, it felt like nothing more than the arrogance of a conqueror. Rossbach may have loomed large in the French imagination, but to the Prussians, it was just another entry on a long list of battles won by their country during an age of glorious victories. They generally viewed the Habsburgs as Prussia's greatest rivals, not the French. They didn't quite understand these intense feelings their French enemies had brought into this war. Most Prussians were not aware that many French officers and soldiers felt they had an important score to settle. 
And so, to the Prussians, it seemed Napoleon was going out of his way to humiliate their country and disrespect its history, for no obvious reason. In the minds of many Prussians, Jena and Auerstedt, and the other humiliations of autumn 1806, would soon loom just as large as Rossbach did for Napoleon and his generation of Frenchmen. And, just as the French had done in the wake of the Seven Years' War, many Prussians swore they would do anything in their power to avenge their disgrace, and ensure it was never repeated. Now, the Prussians were the ones who felt they had a score to settle. In their obsession with reversing the humiliation of Rossbach, Napoleon and his officers had inadvertently begun laying the seeds of a bitter rivalry, a rivalry which would stretch on for generations, see millions killed on both sides, and sow destruction across the continent and beyond. When Adolf Hitler visited Paris in 1940, one of the first things on his agenda was a visit to Napoleon's tomb. In Hitler's mind, his conquest of France was the latest chapter in that old rivalry. By visiting Napoleon's tomb, in the same way Napoleon had visited Frederick's, Hitler was trying to symbolically reverse the humiliations of Jena and Auerstedt, just as Napoleon had hoped to reverse the humiliation of Rossbach. As he left the tomb, Hitler remarked, quote, That was the greatest and finest moment of my life. End quote. Obviously, Adolf Hitler was a man of many, many hatreds, but this old rivalry with France clearly held great significance for him. I think it's safe to say these hard feelings between the French and the Germans, kindled in the aftermath of Jena and Auerstedt, would not truly be set aside until the aftermath of the Second World War. And who knows, history is strange. There's no guarantee these feelings won't reappear again. Of course, we shouldn't generalize too much here. Despite the looting and sporadic violence and criminality, the people of northern Germany had a whole range of views on the French. These feelings we've been discussing, of wounded pride and a desire for revenge, were certainly predominant among the Prussian ruling class, especially the officer corps of the army. But they were not universal, especially outside of Prussia proper and outside of the ruling elite. Many other Germans had more ambivalent feelings. For all the destruction they left in their wake, the French army was a force for change, and change can be a good thing, even if it is often violent and destructive. You might remember that philosophy professor from the University of Jena, Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, who had a chance encounter with Napoleon the day before the twin battles, and wrote to a friend, quote, I saw the emperor, this world soul, riding out of the city on reconnaissance. It is indeed wonderful to see such an individual, who, concentrated here at a single point, astride a horse, reaches out over the world and masters it. End quote. This is exactly what he was getting at. To Hegel, Napoleon represented the future, for better and for worse. And in his philosophy, the future was to be welcomed, even if it came with a dose of pain and suffering. Whoever ultimately won this war, Napoleon's invasion of Prussia had shaken the country to its core, and, as the events of the last month had proved, Prussia needed to be shaken up. The government had become ineffective. The arrival of the French would force things to change. 
Either the Prussians would have to get their act together and learn from their enemies to somehow turn the tables and triumph over France, or the region would move forward under Napoleon's guidance. Either way, the invasion meant progress as well as destruction, and many Prussian intellectuals saw that as a good thing. It's somewhat ironic that in the 19th century, as the Prussian and later German state tried to stoke their brand of avenging anti-French nationalism, many leading German intellectuals wrote fondly of the French occupation. Heinrich Heine wrote nostalgic poems remembering his childhood fascination with these exotic newcomers, and how the ladies of Dusseldorf had been charmed by the dashing French soldiers. Even years after Napoleon's defeat, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe continued to wear the five-pointed cross of the Legion of Honor on his chest, given to him by the emperor himself. And it wasn't just intellectuals who held these ambivalent feelings about the French invasion. Many common people saw a silver lining to this invasion. No one liked the looting or the high taxes that came in its wake, and I doubt anyone with a relative in the Prussian army was hoping to see it defeated. But, as we've discussed in many past episodes, French rule brought tangible benefits as well. The arrival of the Grande Armée represented the death knell of feudalism, and heralded the arrival of better and more responsive government, even if that government would be a puppet of a foreign power. To the Jewish communities of northern Germany, Napoleon's armies represented liberation from centuries of legal discrimination and social exclusion, but that's a topic for another episode. Whatever their feelings about the French, one thing was clear to every person in northern Germany. The future was suddenly very uncertain. For better or for worse, things would be changing in this part of the world. The revolution had penetrated the heart of Germany. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Napoleon's invasion of Prussia was awakening deep national feelings, and not only among the French and the Germans. In November, troops from Marshal Davout's corps marched unopposed into the city of Posen in eastern Prussia. They had captured many enemy settlements in the last few weeks. But this time was different. They were mobbed by friendly civilians, eager to welcome them. Unlike their Prussian overlords, most of the people of the city didn't refer to it as Posen, but as Poznan, its Polish name. The Grande Armée had pushed so far east, they were now encroaching on territory that had once been the Commonwealth of Poland. 
For most of the residents of Posen, the Prussians were hated foreign occupiers, and the French were their gallant allies. We haven't really spent much time talking about Poland since all the way back in episode 20, so we should take a moment to remind ourselves of what was going on in this part of the world, and get ourselves caught up on recent history. The Polish experience in the late 18th century had some parallels to France. Just like in France, the country had been faced with a crisis, and the government had proved too ineffective and incompetent to organize a proper response. And so, just like in France, liberals and reformers had come to the forefront, hoping to build a new, modern government that would be dynamic enough to respond to the country's daunting challenges. In France's case, the crisis was largely financial. In Poland's case, the crisis was military and diplomatic. The country was surrounded by hostile foreign powers. Austria, Prussia, and Russia all held ambitions of seizing Polish territory. Just like in France, the reformers and radicals had hoped that by creating a more effective and just government, they could rally the people to the defense of the state. Unlike in France, this only half worked. The liberal Polish government had some success in reforming the state, and just as they had hoped, these reforms tied the concept of an independent Poland to the ideals of freedom and justice in the minds of many Polish people. And so, many did unite behind the government in hopes of a better future. In 1794, a Polish general named Tadeusz Kosciuszko launched an uprising against the advancing foreign powers. Tens of thousands of Poles flocked to his banners, including many average people, even peasants. The rebels enjoyed some tantalizing success against incredible odds, but were ultimately defeated. Kosciuszko's uprising was suppressed with shocking brutality. At the city of Praga, just outside Warsaw, the Russian army slaughtered perhaps as many as 20,000 civilians in a single day, more than were executed by the revolutionary government in Paris during the entire Reign of Terror. In 1795, the Eastern Great Powers carved up the last remaining independent Polish territory. The Polish Commonwealth had ceased to exist. However, although the state had vanished from the map, the idea of Poland did not die. To many Polish people, the state had come to stand for much more than a color on the map, or a specific clique of the ruling elite. To these new Polish patriots, the dream of a free Poland was not only about sovereignty and freedom from foreign domination, it meant civil liberties, modern methods of administration, constitutionalism, and equality before the law, many of the same ideals that French patriots had come to associate with their country. And so, in the wake of the partition of Poland, many young Poles made their way west, towards France, a country that shared their ideals and their enemies. Many of these patriotic exiles joined the French army, hoping to continue fighting against the Prussians, Austrians, and Russians. Eventually, there were so many of these men that the French army began to organize entire regiments of Polish soldiers. These units came to be known collectively as the Polish Legions. The exiled legionnaires proved to be a very good fit for the armies of the Republic. The experience of the Revolution had taught the French to fight as citizen soldiers, and the experience of the partitions of Poland and the Kosciuszko Uprising had done much the same thing for their Polish comrades. 
legions soon proved to be highly competent, equal to their French comrades in every respect. They wore a mix of French and Polish uniforms and were led by Polish officers. The leading figure in the legions was General Jan Henryk Dombrowski, who had served in the Army of the Old Commonwealth and led rebel troops during the Kosciuszko Uprising. Dombrowski and his men were actually assigned to the Army of Italy during Napoleon's first Italian campaign. Depending on the stage of the campaign, somewhere around one out of every twenty soldiers in the Army of Italy was a Polish legionnaire. Another major figure in this movement was a liberal nobleman and intellectual named Józef Wybicki. He wrote a poem in honor of the legions, which immediately became a hit among the Polish exiles as they marched through Italy under the French tricolor. It went like this, quote, Poland has not yet died as long as we still live. What foreign powers have seized from us, we shall recapture with a saber. March, march Dombrowski, to Poland from the Italian lands. Under your command, we shall rejoin the nation. We'll cross the Vistula, we'll cross the Varta, we shall be Polish. Bonaparte has given us the example of how we should prevail. End quote. The poem would later be set to music, titled Dombrowski's Mazurka, and, with a few revisions, it is Poland's national anthem today. I think it's safe to say the spirit described in that anthem has persevered through the centuries. As most of you probably know, the history of the Poles in the 19th and 20th century included more than their share of sorrows. But that spirit, born in the hearts of the legionnaires, never died out. In fact, the ideal of a free Poland grew stronger, even without a state to support it. So, with that background, the arrival of Davout's troops in Posen in November of 1806 is a fateful event. This is the moment when the great Western European Revolution finally reached far enough east to touch the heartland of the great Central European Revolution. The hope carried by every Polish patriot was suddenly given new life. Many French soldiers were surprised by the rapturous welcome they received in Posen, but at least two of their number were not. General Jan Henryk Dombrowski and Józef Wybicki had accompanied the Grande Armée in its invasion of Poland, hoping for exactly this occasion. All the way back in 1797, Wybicki's anthem had wished, slightly fancifully, for Dombrowski and his legions to march from Italy to Poland. It had taken nearly a decade, and they hadn't taken the direct route, but they had actually done it. The two men immediately began setting up a provisional administration, made up of local Polish notables, to maintain order in the city and its surroundings, and, they hoped, to create a seed that might one day grow into a restored Polish state. Napoleon himself was still in the German-speaking regions of central Prussia, but, as French troops advanced into former Polish territory, he began receiving petitions from prominent Poles, seeking his help in the declaration of an independent Poland. Bonaparte looms very large in Polish history. After France, and perhaps Italy, I don't think there's any country where he made a bigger impact or left a bigger impression on the national psyche. As we just saw, he actually gets mentioned by name in the country's national anthem, a rare distinction for a foreigner. However, as he approached the Polish issue, Napoleon had to tread carefully. 
As we've seen in many past episodes, the diplomatic balance of power was a delicate thing. If Napoleon indulged all the hopes of the Polish patriots and restored the Polish Commonwealth as it had existed in its golden age, there would be vast and unpredictable geopolitical shockwaves throughout all of Eastern and Central Europe. Such a state would almost inevitably become a great power. A free Poland would have justifiable historical claims on huge swathes of territory, territory that currently belonged to the Prussians, Austrians, and Russians. The old Polish state had engaged in bitter rivalry with these countries for centuries. Restoring Poland would be seen as an act of high aggression by every other power in the region, maybe even an existential threat. In fact, even the limited level of support France had already given to the Polish cause was seen as highly provocative in Berlin, Vienna, and St. Petersburg. So, as Napoleon reviewed these petitions, and talked over the issue with Dombrovsky and Vibitsky, he knew he was playing with fire. However, the potential dangers of Polish nationalism had to be weighed against other concerns. There was an ideological angle here. As we've discussed many times in the past, ever since the early days of the revolution, France had sought to become a protector and sponsor of patriotic and liberal movements throughout Europe. Not only did many of the French elite really believe in this mission, it was a useful way to project soft power, as we might put it today. Even a cynical man like Napoleon understood that progressive ideals carried huge weight to millions of Europeans including many people who might be useful to France. He also had to consider the undeniable sacrifice of the Polish legionnaires. There was no getting around the fact that France owed a debt to the Poles. Thousands of Polish men had stepped up to help save the country in its darkest hour. In doing so, they had exposed themselves to great danger, and many had been killed or maimed. You might ask, what are the lives of a few thousand soldiers weighed against these massive, impersonal geopolitical forces? But by this point in our story, the exploits of the Polish legionnaires were well known all over Europe, especially in their homeland. If Napoleon rejected these petitions and ignored Polish aspirations for independence, he would have to walk over the graves of all those brave legionnaires to do so. It would be a public relations nightmare for France. Those cheering crowds that had greeted the Grande Armée in Posen and other formerly Polish cities might change their minds very quickly. Napoleon had to steer a difficult course. As his troops pushed east, France's good relationship with the Polish people was on the verge of becoming very fruitful. Millions of friendly Poles could help ease his conquests in Central Europe, provide much-needed manpower for the Grande Armée and burnish France's reputation as a defender of liberty that rewarded its friends. Napoleon couldn't risk souring that relationship now, after ten years of positive collaboration, just when both parties needed each other the most. But he also couldn't ignore the dangers that might arise from creating a powerful new state right in the heart of Central Europe. And so, Napoleon answered these petitions for Polish independence with a challenge. Quote, France has never recognized the various partitions of Poland. Nevertheless, I cannot proclaim your independence until you have decided to defend your rights as a nation with arms, by every sort of sacrifice, even that of life. 
you have been reproached with having, in your continued civil dissensions, lost sight of the interests of your country. Instructed by your misfortunes, reunite yourselves and prove to the world that one spirit animates the whole Polish nation. End quote. So Napoleon would not simply give the Poles their new state by decree. However, he invited them to take up arms, pledged a great deal of support, and promised to recognize an independent Poland, if and when the Poles were able to seize it for themselves. With considerable help from Napoleon and the Grande Armée, Dombrovsky and Vybitsky began laying plans to raise a free Polish army of 40,000 men, to be formed around a nucleus of experienced Polish legionnaires transferred from the French army. Dombrovsky would lead, with Vybitsky acting as a provisional civilian head of state. What modern historians call the Greater Poland Uprising had begun. Napoleon's proclamation was exactly what many Poles had been hoping to hear. Chance to fight for a free Poland themselves, with assistance from their French allies, was all they had ever wanted. They saw this pronouncement as the fulfillment of the dreams that had sent the Polish legionnaires west over a decade ago. Napoleon already had many admirers among the Poles, but for playing this pivotal role in their struggle for independence, many of those admirers were converted to hardcore loyalists. For the rest of our story, Bonaparte will be more popular in Poland than almost anywhere else in his empire. By the end of his reign, the Poles may have had more love for him than the French. But these feelings were not universal. More conservative Polish nobles had never been comfortable with the Francophilia of their peers. They saw France as the home of the revolution, a decadent and atheistic place, where dangerous ideas held sway. The way many of these conservative nobles saw it, if Poland was going to have to make a deal with the devil, it might as well be with the Russian or Austrian emperors, or the Prussian king, who at least shared their values. And it wasn't just the conservatives. Some liberal Polish patriots had been disappointed by Bonaparte's reluctance to throw his full weight behind their cause. As we've discussed, there were many geopolitical forces pulling against Polish freedom, and Napoleon had to pay attention to French interests as well as his debt to the Poles. But in the minds of some Poles, the legions had paid for full independence in blood. Anything less was an insult. They believed Napoleon was just stringing them along, exploiting the Polish people's aspirations for his own selfish purposes. Some Polish patriots also had ideological reasons to mistrust Bonaparte. Most of these people were liberals and republicans. Napoleon's authoritarian hereditary monarchy made them very nervous. The great leader of the Polish uprising of 1794, Tadeusz Kosciuszko, was among these skeptics. As he put it, quote, Napoleon thinks only of himself, not about nationalist ideas, and so he could not care less about any dreams of independence. He is a despot, whose only goal is to satisfy his personal ambition. He will create nothing of substance, of that I am sure. End quote. However, men like Kosciuszko, or those anti-French nobles at the other end of the political spectrum, were in the minority. For most politically aware Poles, Napoleon was an icon, and the men who volunteered to fight in his Polish regiments were national heroes. We will talk more about the relationship between Poland and Napoleonic France in future episodes, 
but these tensions we've discussed in this episode will never totally dissipate. On one side, friendship, sacrifice, and shared struggle, and on the other, the cold necessities of geopolitics, and the practical difficulties of resurrecting a defunct state. One thing was clear. For better or for worse, the fate of Poland and the fate of Napoleon Bonaparte were now tied together. But of course, that would not be decided in the near future. For now, the Grande Armée had friendly civilians on its eastern flank, and the prospect of 40,000 more Allied troops in the near future, assuming Dombrovsky and Vibitsky would be successful in raising their rebel army. We haven't talked at all about the West Prussian Front mostly because it was not very eventful. But it is worth mentioning that there were 6,000 Dutch troops, under Napoleon's brother Louis, recently crowned King of Holland, fighting alongside their French allies. In central Prussia, the second wave of Napoleon's invasion was entering the country. These were mostly inexperienced and or lower quality units, who were fit for occupation duty, but not good enough to be part of the spearhead of the Grande Armée. This second wave included around 20,000 Germans. In episode 90, we covered the foundation of the Confederation of the Rhine, Napoleon's new pro-French replacement for the Holy Roman Empire. I mentioned that part of the reason for this new institution was to provide troops for Napoleon's armies. These 20,000 men were the first of many from western and southern Germany to answer the call. We've talked a lot in this episode about the bad impression Napoleon and his soldiers were making in northern Germany, but it's worth reminding ourselves that thousands of Germans fought for him, some quite eagerly. So, if we add up all these contingents, that's 66,000 foreign troops now under Napoleon's command. On top of that, by this point in our story, Napoleon also had access to tens of thousands of Italian troops who served under the flag of his Kingdom of Italy, although none of them were deployed in Germany. And, as we've discussed in a recent dispatch, there were also Swiss regiments serving Napoleon. There had been groups of foreigners in the French army for as long as anyone could remember, dating back to the days of the monarchy. But the character of the army had always remained French. In fact, a lot of these soldiers had been foreigners in name only, Germans or Italians recruited from German or Italian-speaking parts of France, or so-called Irishmen who were sons or even grandsons of Irish exiles, but born and raised in France. Now, Napoleon's army was increasingly resembling his empire, multi-ethnic, multilingual, and from all over Western and Central Europe. These foreign units served under their own flags, representing their own countries. Their officers gave commands in their native languages. These were not mercenaries, but citizen soldiers, fighting for their country's futures, just like the French. At least, that was the official line. But could these men really be trusted to fight as hard as their French comrades? Did they have the same relationship to Napoleon and his empire? And if not, how much did that matter? As we've discussed in this and many past episodes, the French could be harsh masters in the lands they conquered. Napoleon was not some kind of hardcore nationalist, but he was a Frenchman first, and French interests were always foremost in his political and strategic decision-making. 
Many people outside France admired Napoleon's achievements, but would they follow him into battle with the same steadfastness as his French troops? Would they stay loyal to the cause if the tides of war turned against him? All of these were open questions. Despite the incredible French victories of the preceding month, there was no sign of the war ending any time soon. Bonaparte's foreign soldiers would soon be tested. I think that's a good place to leave things for now. We'll close out with a recording of Dombrovsky's Mazurka. Until next time, thanks for listening. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marvelled at the golden face of Tutankhamun, or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. Thank you. 
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.